How to Create a Glitch, Monologues, Season 2, Chapter 9. This is the ninth and final episode of Season 2 of How to Create a Glitch in the Matrix, Monologues. In this episode I'll be talking about how to apply the principles in these podcasts towards a more productive purpose, namely social resistance. This podcast is authored under a pseudonym for a very simple reason. Harmless though the contents of this podcast may appear to be, the goal of this podcast is anything but. In short, the contents are as mysterious as they are esoteric. Be that as it may, their foundation is ultimately in a particular view of the world, and that view of the world may not be totally divorced from the use to which they are put. Nevertheless, this author is an agnostic of sorts, not a believer, but a cynic and ideologue. If we are to start with some idea, let it be that all minds intersect, in a vast interplay of ideas, within the forum of the media, style, narrative and story. Let it be understood that in a society no individual is an island, her thoughts and dreams, triumphs and failures. Let it be understood that in actuality a common mind may be a figment of the imagination. In practice it is the stuff of every public dialogue, every cafeteria, movie theatre and theatre hall. For in the dialogue of socialization there can be no doubt that we all play a role. This marketplace of ideas, this vast dialogue which transits through our words, our faces, our hands and our stories, must bring this common mind as close as is possible to a reality, without actually making it so. And so, let us begin with the foundation that every expressive action, from the clothes you wear, to the faces you make, to the words you use, to the choices you take, they all contribute to this vast and convoluted dialogue which is the zeitgeist. And so, with this starting point, we can begin the discussion of how to go about starting a revolution from your living room. If every expressive action expresses something of substance, every choice, not mere happenstance, then, we must develop the eyes to see and the ears to hear, not the incidental meaning, but the meaning beneath the meaning. If we categorize actions in the degree to which they conform to some social expectation, then in that understanding it becomes possible to equate some minor act of social disobedience with the gravest and most gruesome of murders. In this, tyrannies use the right measure, for in a tyranny, the punishment for both is death. You see, in this understanding, that a refusal to conform to some common expectation, you have committed an act of social disobedience, one can live in a state of abject freedom, in the shadow of the most vile of despots. A cigarette flicked to a stainless floor, a jacket worn amidst the heat, or a door opened for a stranger, amongst the busy traffic of downtown. Every act becomes capable of expressing one's non-conformity with some conventionality. The only delimiting factor is the rubric of conventionality. I am not suggesting antisociality as an ambrosia. What I am suggesting is that context becomes the ruler of the new revolutionary. If cruelty is the norm, then you become kind, if indifference is the norm, then become full of care. In this freedom, found in the shadows of social expectations, one can form a kind of identity, so long as one does not proceed too far into the abyss of antisociality. For in that abyss, one runs afoul of basic social norms and ends up in the grasp of criminal sanction. So, part and parcel of this idea must come the caution of every law-abiding member of society, not to maintain the law at all times, 
but to break it only insofar as it is socially convenient to do so. Nevertheless, it is not essential to break the law in this recipe, it is enough to use nonconformity in the degree it does not draw the sanction of the law. For again, if we understand that every act of nonconformity is revolutionary, one need not go so far as to end the life of another. Now, if we understand that society operates under a compromise, if we understand that it allows for the expression of certain kinds of behavior, within the bounds of the criminal prohibition, then we can see that we are all obligated to resist certain impulses, insomuch as they violate the basic tenets of social norms. There are certain impulses which will never be permissible, but, we can channel these antisocial impulses into nonconformity with some minor tenet of the social contract, which does not draw the sanction of the law. In other words, society as a whole, and depending upon which society we live in, in particular, requires that we give up certain satisfactions which arise part and parcel of our nature, so long as we exist within that society and do not wish to fall afoul of the criminal law. But, society also maintains a set of behaviors which are not subject to the criminal law, and which are more particularly the subject of social convention, which are more amenable to the bending, even breaking, of convention, with minimal consequence or repercussion. I call this particular quality of society as the social directive, for it requires that we abandon certain facets of our being so as to maintain the social contract and ensure the survival of the group. In some cases these requirements are clear-cut and explicit, in others they are implicit, but implied. But in every social grouping there is a fundamental set of rules, which must be obeyed, or one is expelled from the group, or the group itself fragments. Often these rules rely upon some social organization, some set of archetypes, some structure, which is socially recognized. From the smallest unit, the nuclear family, to the largest organization, the government, these rules exist as a social compromise, a social contract, which individuals must follow, if they wish to remain in the group. Now, this social compromise also delimits the identity of social participants. The compromise which is the social contract of any given group maintains the reality that for some impulses must be redirected, for others impulses may be expressed, and so on and so forth. Thus, part and parcel of the social contract is the delimitation of the identity of the social group participants, according to some archetype which is an established and recognized component of the social grouping. The engineering of socialization follows the course of the dialogue, from media, fashion trends, literature and narrative, we redraw the framework of the social organization, giving to some and taking from others, according to the manner by which we re-engineer the foundational archetypes of the group. It is through social trend and media that new archetypes are added, narrative evolves, and the social directive is circumscribed. Such are the lessons of history. But there are other lessons we can take from history, which is that the reoccurrence of trends reflects the underlying ideological struggles of a time period, embedded in the fabric of those trends, just as movies detail the re-engineering of society, so does society recapitulate those struggles. All of this suggests an organization to society and sociality that cannot be denied. There is no use resisting the truth of the matter, which suggests itself into the mind, as a canary reveals impending death in a mineshaft. It occurs to this author that just as trends reoccur through history, 
Beyond the degree to which fashion reflects liberality or conservatism, these trends underlie a resetting the clock, a calibration of society as a whole using the mechanism of social convention. Style, trend, film and theater underlie the macrocosmic trends which shape the behavior of individuals. These trends reoccur when it is socially convenient for them to do so. When the social imagination requires the resolution or expression of certain social conflicts or the resolution of certain impulses. For in this recapitulation there is a kind of logic, a logic which builds upon the basic foundation expressed in the first chapter of this volume, that in every expressive act there is a form of communication, an interplay between the minds of social actors, within the context of their social grouping. And so it becomes clear that in the expression of any artist there is merit, in the degree to which she is reflected in the zeitgeist of any time. And it need not be said that every artist is of his era, for there are many artists who are discovered after their deaths, reaching out from the grave with their precognition. So, it is clear that among the artistic community, the trendsetters of a particular era exist as a kind of shadow government, setting trends in fashion, literature, music, film and theatre. These trends represent the recapitulation of a trend of the past, and its fulmination in the present, a kind of eternal cycle of ideological and sociological imperative. I would suggest that the cyclical trends of media reach into the past and draw out the many narratives of a past era, with its economic, social and political realities. For this reason, all of history is cyclical, twisted into a pattern of eternal recurrence. But, of course, all those in power know this. It isn't a new idea, certainly not, because it is the manner by which they engineer us, their modus operandi, their method and their madness, it is the both the beginning and the end of a question which reveals a larger answer, within the puzzle which is progressivism. For it is not in the fact that the trend reoccurs that we must be attentive, but in the manner by which it does not. Specifically, there is a movement to the zeitgeist, an innovation, a blending, a revealing, an uncovering. And in this pattern there is a truth which cannot be resisted, until it makes its way like a worm into the core of an apple. For it is clear that history recapitulates the past, but it is also clear that there must still be some movement to the thing, for otherwise, it would manifest in exactly the same way, in exactly the same time, over and over again, which it does not. There is a drive of the shadow government towards the unraveling of history, the gradual unworking of every historical trend, the elimination of every historical struggle, and once complete, the belief we will step into a future utopia. This is the faith of the shadow government, their beginning and their end. And so, they wait and watch. They plot the course of the future using their stories and fashion, music and theatre. There are fundamentally two practical ways to implement the power of the shadow government. In the context of the legal system, a system based on historical precedent can undermine the natural evolution of these trends and their influence upon the zeitgeist or it can magnify them. Adhering to a literal or originalist contextual interpretation of a constitutional document can have the effect of slowing the impact of the shadow government upon the evolution of society. However, adhering to a living interpretation of any founding document can have the opposite effect. Nevertheless, social trends are not necessarily manifest in the context of the law. So much of society happens in between closed doors, 
or within a realm of activity in which there is no correlate to the criminal law sanction. Likewise, the weakness of the mechanisms of social sanction in any social structure or grouping undermine the ability of that sanction to elicit conformity with the social contract of the grouping. Nevertheless, the purpose of this volume is not to resist the path of progression. The purpose of this volume is to give one the tools to become a social revolutionary without ever leaving one's living room and in that context, it becomes clear that aligning oneself to a regressive view of legal precedent only has utility in the degree to which it permits one to increase the social stresses of society. Again, however, that is not the path which this author is recommending, though it is indeed one tried and true. No. The path that this author is suggesting involves using the same tools which the shadow government uses for a completely different purpose. To return to the legal system, most court systems rely upon legal precedent. Legal precedent, from the higher court to the lower, compels the obedience of the lower court and the organs of the government through deference. Deference is the basic building block of a legal system. It is the mechanism by which those in power affect their populace through the sanction of the law. But it is also the methodology by which trends are made manifest by the shadow government. For trendsetters are typically those with some sort of social status or power within society. They compel the obedience of the subjects, just as surely as the courts demand the obedience of the organs of the state. To truly undermine the organs of the state, one has to discover a way of working against this doctrine of deference, to undermine the imposition of trends by the shadow government, to direct society in a certain way, back to a time when ideological crises sent it to the breaking point.